Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I don't know why, but I always imagined when I was young that I would be the perfect host. I would have these fantasies of parties that I would throw, and I would be the, the kind of chief entertainer with all of the action swirling around me. And I finally, after I graduated from college, had the opportunity to throw my first party. And because it was kind of a dream of mine, I put a lot of effort into it. Um, I hosted it in the biggest space that I had. It was my parents' house. I, I catered the fanciest food that I could, or rather I had my mom cater some food. Uh, we used the best dishes, everything. It was really nice. I had uh, fancy music playing in the background. And as I was preparing, I could see the success of the evening playing out. I could imagine all of the people who I had invited, how much they would uh, be laughing and, and laughing at, at, at things that I said, uh, how their eyes would sparkle as they looked at me as I was hosting them so, so suavely. And the reputation that would proceed when people talked about this event afterwards, how everyone would say, I've been to so many parties, but, but Mark's party was the best that I've ever been to. And then the guests started to arrive. And those of you who know a little bit about entertaining don't need to be told, this party was a disaster. It was a disaster. It was a case study like an anthropological study in human awkwardness. People literally like circled around in the room, uh, keeping their distance from one another, staring at one another almost fearfully. No one seemed to be interested in the fancy hors d'oeuvres. No one felt like they could drink out of the fancy glasses. Uh, the music seemed off-putting and alienating to everyone. And when I occasionally tried to say something, uh, I could barely get it out and ended up retreating into a cone of silence myself. Eventually, I was able to figure out what went wrong. And it's the thing that often goes wrong in these situations. I was trying to host a party, but that party was all about me. Everything, every thought, every plan, Every vision that I had had to do with how I would look, what other people would think about me, how impressed they would be with everything that I had done. And that turned out to be a recipe for social failure because everybody who showed up to the party was in the same boat, self-conscious, worried what other people would think about them, concerned that, that they wouldn't live up to what was clearly meant to be a remarkable occasion. And so all of us in our self-consciousness found it almost impossible to celebrate, almost impossible to enjoy this party, which was meant to be all about having fun. If you want to be a good host, if you want to throw successful parties, then your focus can't be on yourself. But it also can't be on just having fun. It's not about you being seen a certain way, but it's also not about you just enjoying yourself. It's about others. Until you can focus 
on your guests until you can focus on serving others regardless of how they perceive you. You'll never be able to create that communal bond that is necessary. You will never be able to enter into the, the experience that people have together when they celebrate. We've been talking about eating with Jesus. We said last time that eating with Jesus means eating with sinners. And that may seem awkward. It may seem like there are people invited to the table that you don't want to be seen with, but the reality is we're all sinners. And so we should be grateful that at Jesus' table he receives sinners and eats with them. But there's something else about eating with Jesus that's important, and it's this. Eating with Jesus means eating with joy. Eating with Jesus means eating with joy. In fact, if you're not eating with joy, chances are you're not eating with Jesus at all. Because at Jesus' table, the emotion, like the air is thick with joy, with celebration. When Jesus throws the feast, no one is self-conscious. No one is awkward. Everyone is jubilant at the feast that Jesus throws. And if not, if you don't have joy, then the problem is you. If you don't have joy, then you have no one to blame but yourself. Or to put it another way, nothing to blame but self. Joy is a natural response to restoration. The three stories that Jesus tells in the presence of these scribes and Pharisees are stories of loss and restoration, as we've said before. But there's another note that is sounded in each of these stories that's picked up in the texts that we read earlier, and it is the call to joy. In each one of these stories, they resolve, they end with a call to rejoice. The shepherd says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost the woman says, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. And the father says, let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. To celebrate, to rejoice is natural. It's what you do once you've witnessed such a great restoration. When something that mattered was lost and now it's found again, what else would you do but celebrate? And that's the assumption that Jesus makes. The reason he's telling these stories in particular is he's wanting to show that what, what's happening, what he's doing, when he receives sinners and eats with them, that is the natural thing that anyone would do under these circumstances. And of course, I'm receiving sinners and eating with them. Of course, I feast with sinners because they've been restored, because they were lost and now they've been found. What else would you do? If you have a beating heart in your chest, what else would you do but celebrate, have joy? He prefaces the first two stories this way. When he tells the story of the lost sheep, he says, What man among you? Which one of you, if you were the shepherd who found the sheep that was lost, which one of you wouldn't celebrate? Show of hands, who wouldn't have joy? Which one of you, if you were that woman who lost a tenth of her wealth and then recovered it, which one of you? wouldn't celebrate, wouldn't rejoice. Of course you would, Jesus is saying. It's natural to celebrate in these circumstances. If you don't feel joy at these moments of restoration, there's something up with you. 
It's interesting to note as well, and you see this in each of the stories, that there's not just a call to rejoice, but that rejoicing is communal. It's a call to others to rejoice. Rejoicing is a communal act, not just a personal one. The shepherd and the woman and the father, they all invite others into the joy. They're not just happy for themselves, having a little party in their minds. The natural response for them is to draw others into this celebration, into this joy. The Pharisees and the scribes, they should be rejoicing too. Of all people, these highly religious people, when they see Jesus receiving sinners and eating with them, they should be rejoicing at this restoration of sinners, but they're not. They're not. And Jesus' stories are like a sharp knife cutting to the heart of the reason. There is a heart problem. There's a heart condition in Jesus' critics. There's a reason why they don't feel the way that they should. It's pride. They are more concerned with themselves than they are with others. Like a narcissistic college graduate trying to host his first successful party, what matters to them is how they are perceived. What matters to them is that they are recognized, and so they are blinded to what any normal person in that situation should experience. Their hearts are closed to joy because they don't care that what was lost is being restored. Pride is the problem here. And Jesus makes this clearer if we go back to chapter 14 of Luke. In chapter 14, right at the beginning, we find there's a context. Jesus has been invited to a meal with a ruler of the Pharisees. And Jesus shows up to the meal and and proceeds to make the self-righteous people there very uncomfortable with the things that he says, a series of parables that he shares. One of them, this is in Luke 14, starting in verse 7, is called the parable of the wedding feast. And it's kind of interesting, Jesus' advice, because it starts off sounding very self-helpy, like Jesus is giving them tips on how to cleverly advance in social situations. But the way it ends reveals that there's something deeper. So so here are Jesus' words. This is the parable of the wedding feast. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. So far, so good. seems like Jesus is is giving you some great tips on how to navigate social situations. Whenever you show up to the party, find the humblest place to sit. Sit in the back. Sit somewhere that clearly is beneath you. And then wait. And eventually the host will realize, oh, Mark, you're being too humble. (laughs) That's the problem with you. You don't know your own worth. Here, friend, come to the front where you belong. 
And this is a foolproof scheme. As long as you start in the back, congratulations, you will end up in the front. This is a great way to burnish your ego, to meet your social goals in any situation. But that's not what Jesus is getting at, as becomes clear when he applies the, the, the moral. He says in verse 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The path to exaltation is through humiliation, not through glory. In order to be exalted in the end, we must first be humbled. Exaltation is undermined by pride. The reason why so many churches are joyless and judgmental is that they're filled with people who are there to have their own merit recognized. They're filled with people who showed up to have their own gifts acknowledged, to be encouraged themselves to have their own ideas affirmed, to be told, yes, you are one of the good ones, and be patted on the shoulder. You're the best of the best. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, our churches are filled with people who can't celebrate the restoration of others because they're concerned about the celebration of self. And the older brother's objection to his father, he says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You are wasting time celebrating the the restoration of the lost instead of acknowledging the merit of those who didn't need that salvation in the first place. That's the pride that closes our hearts to joy. And the way we try to change that, we see the joyless, judgmental places that our churches have become, and we think the solution is to manufacture joy, to manufacture enthusiasm through inspiration, by getting people fired up and, 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 and getting them feeling uh, joyful. But that only compounds the problem. Because real joy is not produced by making yourself feel joy. It's not something you make yourself do at all. It's something that comes naturally from entering into that, that sense of restoration, that celebration. It doesn't need to be manufactured when it's real. And all of those efforts to manufacture joy really are just another way of keeping the focus on ourselves, serving ourselves. Joy doesn't come from from motivational talks. Joy doesn't come from inspirational quotations, from fine oratory or moving music. Joy comes from keeping your eyes on the end of time. C.S. Lewis wrote that all joy reminds. All joy reminds. It is never a possession, he said, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. 
joy points away from self. Joy is closely tied to hope. When we rejoice wholeheartedly, it's not because we think, oh, now I have everything I've ever wanted. When you go to a wedding feast and you rejoice at that wedding, it's not because you really believe it's going to be happily ever after. That's not why you rejoice. It's that in these moments, we see a reflection. We see a promise and anticipation of some future fulfillment. Every sinner who is restored is worth celebrating because each little restoration points to the great restoration of all things that will come when Christ comes again. Joy points away from self, and it points away from other saviors as well. Alexander Schmemann was a Russian Orthodox priest during the era of the Soviet Union. He lived in exile here in the West. And there's an interesting perspective that comes from being an outsider. Sometimes you're able to see the culture more clearly than those who've grown up within it. And when he looked at the culture of the church, he saw something that I think is perceptive. He wrote these words in a diary that he kept. He he kept a journal throughout his life. He didn't intend it for publication. It's not his most polished utterance, but it captures a thought, a perception that I think is worth thinking about. Schmemann wrote these words. He said, Christianity is divided between conservatives longing for a religion of law and recompense and progressives serving a future happiness on this earth. What is interesting is that both groups hate nothing so much as a call to joy, as the reminding of a great joy announced and given at the beginning of the gospel, which is the life of Christianity. Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice, for which Christianity longs. Some say, how can one rejoice when millions are suffering? One must serve the world. Others say, how can one rejoice in a world lying in evil? They do not understand that if for just one minute that lasts secretly and hidden in the saints, the church has overcome the world. The victory was won through joy and happiness. Oftentimes, we can't enter into the joy that we're called to because we're focused on the work of other saviors, because we live in a world full of injustice, because we live in a world full of suffering. And we look and we say, that's not right. We look and we say, that's not the way it should be. And then we look for solutions to those problems. And in that search, we lose sight of the solution that is promised in Scripture. The victory that has already been won. Is it wrong to want to punish wrongdoers? To alleviate suffering? Of course not. Of course not. But even good desires can blind us to where our eyes should be fixed at all time. The call to joy, when Paul says those words, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice, he doesn't mean later. He doesn't mean, look, obviously you can't rejoice now. I mean, the state of the world, who could rejoice? But but one day, Jesus will return 
and everything will be made whole again. And on that day, remember these words and rejoice. No. He's actually calling us to joy now, despite the pain, despite the suffering, surrounded by injustice, living in a world that is not how it should be, that revolts our senses, that offends our sense of justice and mercy. And in that place, broken as it is, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice always, even in the midst of injustice and suffering. We struggle with that. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. How can I rejoice? I think the the, the key word there isn't rejoice. It's in the Lord. Because what Paul is pointing to is the only way to have joy in the world that we live in. The only way to experience joy is to rejoice in the Lord. Any other joy is an illusion. Joy points away from self and away from other saviors, but it points towards fulfillment. The reason you can experience biblical joy in the midst of suffering and pain and setbacks is because joy isn't just a reaction to circumstances, but it's a focus on future fulfillment. If you keep the end in mind, you can rejoice even in trials the beginning of James's epistle, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So you should count it as joy. Obviously, if James is saying you should count this as joy, he knows that it's, joy is not the natural response to trials, to struggles and suffering, to setbacks. He's telling you, to consider that a joy, even though it doesn't feel like joy. And the way that you can consider it joy, to count it joy, is to see what it produces, to recognize that the humiliation now will lead to exaltation on the last day. Only then can you count it joy. Only when you see the steadfastness that will be produced can you experience the trial as joy. If you keep the end in mind, the fulfillment, you can rejoice despite sorrow and pain. When Jesus told the crowds that he would be taken from them, that he would be killed, the disciples were dismayed. They were alarmed by this. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn to joy. Then he gives an example. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. He says those words in John chapter 16. There is sorrow, there is pain, but think of that pain like the pain of childbirth, Jesus says. This is a pain that will produce something that will overshadow and outshine everything that came before. You won't consider the pain because of what is born from that pain. You can only endure pain and suffering that way 
if you're focused on the birth instead of the labor. If you can see the end result, if you can see what will come, then you can endure with joy what must be. Obviously, to talk about joy this way says joy is not just an emotion. It's a state of mind. It's it's a way of living in the present as if the promised future were certain. And that changes the way we relate to our circumstances. The subtext, as we're looking through this passage, is this idea of creating a culture of grace, what that looks like. What does a culture look like when it it flows from the grace of Jesus Christ? A culture of grace will inevitably be a culture of joy. A culture of joy. If it's not joyful, if it's not a community that rejoices, it's not a culture of grace. Grace gives birth to joy. But of course, only the repentant can rejoice at restoration. Only the repentant can rejoice at restoration. When King David, that great man of God who was also a prodigious sinner, after he had cleverly orchestrated the murder of the man whose wife he had stolen, David is confronted by the prophet Nathan who reveals his crime to him. And in repentance, David pens Psalm 51. Having been caught, having been forgiven, he writes this plea to God. And in that psalm, he begs God. He cries out and says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. But there's a line in that psalm that at least to me, is the most telling, the most moving, and maybe the hardest to voice when you read the psalm to yourself. It's found in verse 8 of Psalm 51. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I can't think of a clearer expression of the heart of repentance than that. You have broken me. You have brought me to repentance. You have humbled me. In my pride, you brought me low. You held up the mirror to what I really am. You made me see my sin so that I couldn't hide from myself. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. It's something only the repentant can understand. To the proud, it sounds like an ugly sentiment, malicious, malevolent. But if you've been there, if your bones have been broken by the law of God, and you have felt the restoration of the gospel, then you can cry with David, King David, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The self-righteous, the Pharisees, when they see what's happening at the table, it doesn't make sense. Jesus is celebrating with people who are unworthy of him. More importantly, people who are unworthy of me. 
how could I approach the table of Jesus when it's filled with such people? Jesus ought to have reserved a spot for people like me at the front. I'm more worthy than them. I'm more worthy than them. That's clearly not a table for me. It's the voice of pride speaking. To see the sinners and know I'm not one of them. I'm not like that. I'm not perfect, but I'm not like that. And then to be blinded to what's really happening. The sinner's not that way. The sinner doesn't say I'm better than that. The sinner says I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. That's good. But it's not enough. It's not enough to acknowledge our sinfulness, our unworthiness. All that is is to say I am justly condemned. But you're still condemned. There's no reason to celebrate your honesty about your crimes. Forgiveness is necessary for joy. Both admissions, I'm worthy and I'm not worthy. Both admissions condemn. You have to go farther. I'm not worthy, but Christ is. But Christ is. The important thing about the table isn't who's seated around it. The important thing about the table is whose table it is. It is Christ's table. And he is worthy. And his worthiness repairs all the unworthiness gathered around the table. Repentance means being honest about your sin and putting your hope in Christ alone. The spirit of Christ's table, therefore, is a spirit of rejoicing. This is a culture of grace. It must be a culture of joy. And that's what's pictured when we come to the table. We come to Christ's table at the end of each of our service. The Lord's table, it is a place of self-examination. We are encouraged to examine ourselves. But we're not encouraged to wallow in morbid introspection. There's a way of examining yourself that's just another kind of self-regard. Just once again, making it all about you. Rather, we examine ourselves so that we can put off ourselves and put on Christ. Renew our hope in Christ. That's why when we talk about the table, we speak of it as a feast, as a celebration. It's why when we celebrate, we come forward joyously. We sing with a song in our hearts. We receive gladly together as if we were together participating in the great feast at the end of all things. Because this is a moment that foreshadows that great feast. The hardest thing about the Christian life is not obedience. A lot of people looking from the outside think the hardest thing about being a Christian would be obeying all the rules. Obedience isn't the hard part. The hardest part of the Christian life is joy. There are a lot of people who can just focus on being good, focus on keeping the rules, who can focus on obedience and, and really progress so that from the outside it looks as if everything is as it should be. That part is actually much easier than experiencing the joy in Christ that we are called to. Much easier. Despite all that's happening around us, we have to keep our eyes focused on the cross. The only way to eat with Jesus is to eat with joy 
But you can't eat with joy when you're dining alone. You can't eat with joy when you're dining alone. You can't just rejoice by yourself in the privacy of your own heart. The shepherd says, rejoice with me. The woman says, rejoice with me. And the father says, let us eat and celebrate. The church is what happens when together we answer that call. When we're brought together by the same longing, when our eyes are on the same future, then every single restoration, no matter how small, no matter who it happens to, is an occasion to unite us in joy, to bring us together in hope, a hope that belongs to each of us and to all of us. Grace, rejoice together in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Let this church be filled with grace. And let these broken bones rejoice in Christ our Savior who made himself nothing, who gave himself away to make us whole. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.